0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Good good to see everyone and also to be seen by you. For those who don't know, um, my name's Ephraim and I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Chapel South London. And it's a um, tremendous blessing and privilege always to share God's good word. And um, over the next few weeks, what we're going to take opportunity to do is to um, kind of focus, I should say refocus on our vision as a church, and um, to take some opportunity to just kind of basically and fundamentally unpack it so that it has greater meaning to us as we proceed throughout the year. Um, Church leaders constantly repeat the fact that if um, vision were held in a bucket, it is a bucket that has leaks And we ought not to take it for granted because it's said once or said twice that it's going to be retained by us in our hearts and minds as we go on throughout the life of the church. And so it's something that needs to be reiterated and redefined um, constantly in order that we might be um, faithful to the vision that God has given. And so... And we're going to take some time to do that today, and before we do, I'm just going to pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your consummate goodness toward us, Lord. It's all-consuming, Lord. Your faithfulness toward us, Lord. Your goodness and your kindness is everlasting, Your steadfast love knows no end. And Lord, as we gather today, we gather as a people who have chosen to be here by reason of your grace. You've given us the capacity to. And so evidently we have a vested interest in being here. And ultimately that is to hear from you. And so Lord, I pray that you would Um, speak to our hearts, enliven our hearts, encourage our hearts, Lord, as we um, consider you in the light of your word and just what you would have us to do, Lord. Like Hannah, the mother of Samuel, we say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. And so speak, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, 10 years ago, Calvary Chapel, South London was planted um, out of um, Calvary Chapel, Westminster, and we were planted um, initially, our, f- our first gatherings were in the adventure playground that Pastor P manages in Dulwich, and um, he's actually away with his bride this weekend as it's Sarah's birthday. Um, if you're wondering where he is, Um, and the adventure that he still manages in um, Dulwich is where we first um, set out as a a church, having gatherings, and that was after having taught Bible studies for, I don't know, three or four years prior to that, so we were teaching a Friday night Bible study, Um, it was in Brocklio initially, um, and then we moved to um, new Cross to All Saints, I think, and then we moved to Peckham to St Luke's. And so um, we'd been teaching the Bible as a as a team for a number of years, and were encouraged um, ultimately by the Lord. Our pastor then, Brian Broderson, um, was greatly used to encourage us to step out and plant a church. And he basically said, "Look." You guys are teaching the Bible, you're doing outreach, you're discipling people, you're doing everything that a church is about, and South London needs a church. London needs more churches. And um, through much prayer and a series of events, it was clear and evident that this was the Lord's will for us. And, um, you know, without any shadow of a doubt, when we stepped out, we had no idea what we were doing. And we will be the first to confess that. We just knew that the Bible was God's word and the church is God's people and the two must be faithfully connected and Jesus must be glorified to the nations. And so we were about it. We, we just said like Isaiah, we're men of unclean lips. We're not worthy. We're not qualified. We're not equipped. But here we are. Send us. And so... Um, that's what the Lord did. And um, there's been a lot that we've learned along the way as we've cried out to the Lord for direction and guidance and assistance. And there have been various individuals and um, ministries that have definitely been a blessing to us as leaders. And 10 years later, we're still here to tell the tale by God's grace. Amen. And that's because God is worthy of the praise. God is worthy of the praise. And um, we see quite clearly. Jesus is faithful and true to his word. Jesus says that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As sure as he is Lord, his church continues. The fact that he is Lord will never change. The fact that his church will continue is something also that will never change. And so we appreciate that. Um, We are servants of Christ as leaders. The church is the people of Christ. Sustained and enlivened by the word of Christ. And ultimately, the mission continues. And so 10 years later, it's a blessing to be able to be here and give testimony to the fact that God is true to his word. Amen. Now, that doesn't mean that there haven't been some challenges along the way. That doesn't mean that there haven't been occasions when we were like... I guess individually, not necessarily all at the same time as as free um, pastors, but at various points in our hearts and lives individually, we were like, you know what? Forget this for a laugh, because there's no laughing going on. (laughs) It's not a joke. And uh, maybe, you know what, this is that point in life where we just kind of need to call it a day and go and give ourselves to some other endeavours. Ministry is challenging, and yet... The rewards are out of this world. To please Jesus is something that is absolutely incomparable to anything else. Praise God, i got a witness in the building. And I say that absolutely and certainly, to please Jesus is not to be compared to any other achievement, not to be compared to any other kind of reward or whatever in life. And so we continue to press on. Um, more recently, we, as we've been learning of the Lord, recognize that there is a need for us to have some kind of vision that helps to focus and galvanize us in our efforts toward doing the will of Christ as being the church. And um, we'll talk about that in more detail in a minute. But some of you will be familiar with what is our vision. Anyone care to offer a rendition? A healthy church. Equipped to disciple. Effective in outreach. Praise God. Thank you guys. That's encouraging. (laughs) Patching up that bucket. A healthy church, equipped to the disciple, effective in outreach. Now, there have been those who've said, that's too generic a vision. That doesn't really say much. That doesn't really say anything different to what the Bible says. Praise be to God. <laughs> Listen, if the church is Jesus' church, the vision can't be anything other than what Jesus has stated, right? And so... If it was anything other than that, actually, we should be concerned because we're not here to reinvent the wheel. We're here to continue the work. And so, if it seems generic, and in fact, people who kind of deal with all of this stuff, um, sort of like strategic specialists and so on and so forth, they say that a vision is actually supposed to be generic enough to always be relevant. You're never ever supposed to really feel like you've got to a place where you have arrived and you are all that you aim to be. Because if that's the case, your vision wasn't big enough. And so we see that this is something that is derived from Scripture and we'll unpack that somewhat over the next few weeks. And it's fundamental actually to what God says his expectation is through the the myriad of verses and references to the church and the purpose of the church that exist in Scripture. So this is basically a a kind of uh, a a summary, a boiling down and summarizing of our identity and, and who we're to be and what purpose we're to fulfill as a church. And so today... I'd like to focus on the first part of that, what it means to be a healthy church. And for many, this is an area that is actually most unclear because that statement could mean anything by definition of healthy. Like, what do you define healthy to mean? Does it mean that you're prosperous, you've got your own building and you've got people who are paid staff and you've got a school for your children and is that the picture of healthy that we're aspiring to and so of of the three um, you know we recognize that this one would require some helpful clarification so the first thing we need to do as we look at the statement a healthy church is consider, what is the church? Or as the case may be, who is the church? Now, the verse that I shared, Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church, is the first use of the word church in the New Testament. It's the first use of the word church in the New Testament. And yet it's a concept that the hearers at the time would have clearly understood. Because it's an, it's a concept that stretches back to the Old Testament. And so in the first instance, the word used there in um, Matthew sixteen, eighteen for church is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia, which has two senses to its meaning. On one hand, it means an assembly or a congregation, but also there's a sense in which this assembly were called out or gathered out from among others. And so we see and appreciate that the church are those people who have been gathered by God, to God, and for God. And this isn't a a foreign concept, as I mentioned. In Acts chapter 7, verse 38, we see Stephen, during his... Um, famous martyr's monologue. As he's going through and recounting the history of God's people, he uses the term church in verse 38 here. It says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. And the word there is, in some translations, it will say church. um, It will say ecclesia in the original. And he's using that word intentionally because the word was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew after Alexander the Great conquered the the known world and Greek culture was spread. Greek culture was so um, thorough in the way that it affected communities and nations and so on and cultures that it became... Um, what they call lingo franqua, like the common language um, amongst many of those nations and cultures. And so, such was the commonality of Greek as a language, they rendered a a, a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. Um, It's also known as the Septuagint, or the Seventy. And so, this word "eklesia" was used in the Old Testament In relation to God's people being regarded as gathered by God, to God, and for God. In fact, we don't just have to stop here at Stephen considering the congregation or the church in the wilderness, speaking of the children of Israel who were called out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, um, journey into the promised land. This called out group of people who bear God's name. But actually, we can go right back to the Garden of Eden and see the God who gathered dust And from the dust formed man, and from man built his bread, and so we see there a repetition of the gathering and drawing in order to identify and define his people. And so God's intention from the beginning was always to have a people for himself under his rule who walked in his presence. And at various points throughout the history of the Old Testament, we see God reasserting that intention. And so you have a world full of people in Genesis 6 And their hearts were only filled with wickedness. And from among the world of people, God draws out Noah and his family. And then we see with Abraham, the Lord God call Abraham out from among his people. In the Ur of Chaldees. And so this constant process, of calling out and defining by God, to God, and for God is something that the Jews would have understood went on historically throughout their heritage and throughout their history. And it is such that it finds its fulfillment, it finds its completion in Christ Jesus. And so when we consider church as used by Jesus it wasn't a strange word to them as they heard Jesus say I will build my church because they understood that that was God's intent and God's purpose throughout the ages from the very beginning and so we appreciate The church is God's people, as defined by him, as owned by him. And so we see Jesus makes it clear that the church is his. I will build my church. And it's important that all of us actually recognize and appreciate that. Because at different times and in different ways, we can be tempted to lose sight of that. And so, when in conversation with others about church life, we will sometimes say, you know, at my church, and there's you know, there's nothing wrong with saying that, um, it's good and right and necessary that we belong to a church, that we identify um, with a, a committed relationship with a local expression of the body. But oftentimes, when we have those types of conversations where we're talking about my church or our church, it can almost be from a defensive posture. It can be from a a defensive point of view. You know, the, the, the kind of underlying attitude that we see in the playground when one kid says, my dad's bigger than your dad. My church is better than your church. And at my church... We don't do those funny things. At my church, we do this. And we stick to the Bible. And, well, however true that may be, if you are speaking to fellow believers, we must always remember and appreciate that we are one church. There is one church universal who belongs to Christ. And so, differences are normal and not wrong. And I want to stress that. I think people today have a real sentimental notion. It's like, why are there so many different churches with so much, so many differences? Um, and I'm, the first thing I'd say is, look, of all the different churches that, that are there, you will find that there are a, a body of people within all of those different churches and even across those different denominations that have core beliefs that they agree upon. They have fundamental understanding that they agree upon and stand upon and celebrate together. Believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the only saviour of mankind, and that salvation is only through repentant faith in him And there are churches of all different names, shapes and sizes all across the land and across the world even who hold those fundamental truths as core to our beliefs. And so although there may be minor differences we recognise that we share fundamentals in common and we are one people in relation to that. And so... Jesus has one church. He has one church expressed in local gatherings. And some people can sometimes find themselves in a place where they neglect to understand and appreciate that. And they think, well, you know what? As long as I'm part of the church universal as a whole, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. I'm a part of the universal body of Christ. And so, if I'm here, there, or everywhere, it's all good. But we see no such picture of the church in the New Testament. As the Holy Spirit, in many places, begins to define the nature of the church. And so, we see example here, 1 Thessalonians 1.1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians. And when Paul wrote to the church of the Thessalonians, he wrote something different to that which he did to the church of the Corinthians, as we see him addressed them in 1 Corinthians 1-2. And then when he wrote to the Ephesians, he wrote something different, although something in many ways similar, but different to what he wrote to the church of the Colossians. And then likewise, Philippi, the Philippians, and in Galatia. And so from the outset, we recognize that there, are, there is one universal church With local congregations, local expressions, and both are true. It's not one truth or the other. Both are true at the same time and important to appreciate. So, what constitutes a healthy church? What constitutes a healthy church? And speaking specifically of a local expression of the universal church. I want to look at this from two points of view. First of all, I want to try and provide uh, an overview statement that speaks of the institutional existence of the church. And you're like, Pastor E., come on, man, this ain't politics start talking about institutional existence of the church. This is what I hate about church life, you know. It's all about just these institutions and and rules and regulations. And, well, look, to try and deny or negate the institutional reality of the church is to deny God's work in instituting the church. (laughs) Because God instituted the church. It's his invention, and he brought it to life and put it into existence. And when he did so, he provided a framework, as revealed in the New Testament, that governs the shape and structure of what should be genuinely considered a church. And so as long as there's structure, as long as there's framework, You have institution. Now that doesn't mean that the church is only an institution. And again, this is where people get it wrong. Learned a new word this week, reductionism. And people want to reduce truths down to one thing. So people say, God is love. How can a loving God send people to hell? If, If God is love, why is there such evil in the world? Well, they obviously have a very limited view of who God is. They've reduced their understanding of God down to one aspect of truth. God is love, but God is holy. God is a consuming fire. Let's talk about that, shall we? (laughs) And so let's not reduce our view of the church down to one aspect of truth at the expense of God's revelation of the other aspects. The church is institutional, but it's also personal. I like to think of the church as being a living organism. And we see Paul give a a metaphor, a picture, as to who the church are. He says, the church are a body. And is your body organized? That wasn't a rhetorical question. I just want to keep you... Your body's organized. So, in the morning when you wake up and you step out of bed, you expect your foot to be there to meet the ground when you step out of bed. Now, back in the day, you might have rolled out of bed and it was the hand meeting the ground after you staggered from your night out. But nonetheless... You expect your body to function in an organized fashion. Likewise, the church of Christ. But being a living organism, we're not just organized. Because organisms are are, are an, an organized collection of living cells. There's life. And every individual is a living member of the body of Christ. So it's institutional, and it's also personal. All right, so... I kind of developed this long summary statement. <laughs> and it's one sentence. Because <laughs> you know you don't want to put any like unnecessary pauses in the wrong place so people can then start emphasizing the bits they want, right? It's one sentence. Trying to be like the Apostle Paul out here you know, with them long sentences. So I'll read it through, and I know it's a bit smaller, it'll get bigger in a minute. I'll break it down after. So, from an institutional point of view, a healthy church is a people gathered to God, for God, and by God, submitted to the Lordship of Christ as mediated through his word. Committed to living in loving, ongoing, local relationships of repentant faith. In submission to appropriately appointed elders, who faithfully minister the apostles' doctrine and holy ordinances, meaning baptism and communion. With prayer a priority, protecting the flock and the truth of the gospel, exercising church discipline to the glory of God before the world in a reproductive manner. (laughs) Praise be to God. So, the aim of the summary was to really try and cover all the bases. And um, this will be on the, the, the community group handout, so um, make sure you're on the email list to get that. So a healthy church is a people gathered to God, for God, and by God. Make it a bit bigger. Just a little bit. <laughs> anyway. Um, so the church is not just anyone who would consider themselves to be a church, church, but... It is God's people. And the characteristics of that people then become into view now. Submitted to the Lordship of Christ as mediated through his word. Anyone can gather a group of people together and call themselves whatever they like. One of the chief characteristics of the church is that we are submitted to Christ as Lord. Personally and individually, and also collectively, and that as mediated or administered through his word. How many of you know Jesus is in heaven? Yeah, he's in heaven. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is not here personally. He is here by his spirit. The third person of the Trinity, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, the, the, the spirit of God came, he brought, gave life, breathed life into the church and continues with us, empowering us. And so, in the power of his spirit, as his word is preached, the authority of Christ, the lordship of Christ is administered. If anyone is not submitted to the word of God, they're not submitted to the Christ of the word. And so it's important that any group who would call themselves a church would recognize the word as being the supreme first and final authority. Doesn't stop there. Committed to living in loving, ongoing, local relationships of repentant faith. So... In Ephesians 5, we understand that Christ gave himself to purchase his bride and that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. It is a committed relationship. It is a covenant relationship. It is one of ongoing commitment, uh, uh, an ongoing relationship of love. And so, we as the people of God are called to committed covenanted relationship with God and with one another not in a sometimeish fashion well sometimes i feel like you know being amongst those people and sometimes i really don't no it's ongoing local relationships of Repentant faith. Now, again, underlining repentant faith, that's not just something that we have when we first come to Christ. I repented, I believe, praise be to God, I'm saved. But this is the ongoing response to the gospel, to the good news of Christ's lordship and saving work. This is supposed to be the ongoing attitude of our heart. That we repent and continue repenting. That we have faith, we believe the gospel, and we continue believing. And this is why we need the gospel daily. Because the just shall live day by day by faith. In submission to appropriately appointed elders. So we see in 1 Timothy 3 that elders are supposed to be appointed in the churches. And as Paul went about planting and establishing churches, he instructed them to appoint elders. And so as part of the structure of God's church, there is eldership to the point where the the writers of Hebrews in chapter 13 says, be submitted to your elders. And so, A healthy church is one that will have elders. And some people may want to split hairs. So does that mean that it's only a church where they have elders like South London in plurality and you have... Or does it mean that those who follow what's known as the Moses model and you have a senior pastor, does it mean that they're out of God's will and they're not a legitimate church? Well, I think you will find quite fairly, that even in those churches where they have what's known as a senior pastor, there will be associate pastors, assistant pastors. And my hope would be that their influence upon leadership would be more than just as yes men. Because we see in the New Testament that that is a necessity to a healthy church. I heard Chuck Swindle, the preacher from um, Dallas, say He said this, he said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Any individual who has all the power and all the say is very vulnerable to personal corruption and to corrupting the work. And so plurality is an expression of God's care, providing safety for the leader, leaders, and for the flock. Appropriately appointed. I always have great difficulty when I um, when I come across self appointed leaders. I always struggle with that because we see Paul in First Timothy three speak to Timothy and tell give him a list of, of qualities that an elder ought to have and that he ought to not appoint anyone in a rush. He says, lay hands on no man suddenly, meaning don't openly endorse and appoint someone to eldership in a rush, hurriedly. Take your time. Let them be proven. Don't appoint a novice so they know scripture and, you know, they're they're really um, gifted in teaching and they're a real people person and they've just been a Christian like three weeks. Don't appoint a novice. And so there are certain regulations that regulate the appointment of elders. And if someone's self-appointed, how do they actually, you know, how how do we know that they've actually been through the regulations and been proven? And um, during the time when a lot of us became Christians, like as elders and so on and so forth, um, there were a lot of churches springing up. Um, by individuals who were self-appointed, and um, it was hazardous, I, I can't lie. And so, um, self-appointment isn't healthy, appropriately appointed in, in view of 1 Timothy 3, um, definitely is. Elders who faithfully minister the apostles' doctrine. Now, if you um, look at Acts 2.42, I'll flush it up for you. We see here the early church as it was birthed had these characteristics. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The Apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Anyone who does not recognize the Apostles' teaching, and um, specifically the New Testament, as being authoritative in dictating the belief and behavior of a local church, is not a healthy church. They, in fact, do not qualify to be regarded as a church. If they are not follow- following the apostles' doctrine, then they don't qualify to be a church. In Ephesians, we're told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ being the chief cornerstone. The apostles are those men who Jesus himself commissioned to spearhead the establishing of the church. And so we recognize it is the apostles' doctrine, not false doctrine or the apostles' doctrine plus extra doctrine. But like the apostles' doctrine that is to be adhered to, who also minister the holy ordinances. Now, for some of us, um, we, we'll hear this, and especially as it relates to baptism and communion, and maybe we've kind of had a, a, a background of um, denominational church or even a kind of religious experience, um, maybe coming out of Catholicism, and kind of feel a bit wary about this. I was actually, I had actually put up sacraments first. But that was going to be just like, especially in our day and age, that was just going to mean something else to, to, to people. So I said, okay, look, let's just break it down. Holy ordinances. Jesus left two ordinances to be observed. Baptism and communion. These were things that Jesus said must be done on a continual basis. And so therefore, that is supposed to be an ongoing expression of the life of the church. As we see again from Acts 2.42, there is the necessity that prayer be regarded as a priority. In the Psalms we're told, unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor, those that work, are working in vain. And so in prayer and through prayer, the flock are to be protected as well as the truth of the gospel to the extent where it will also. Oops, sorry. Hmm. No, no. That was not, in, that was not subliminal. <laughs> oh, boy. I got it on Tuesday, you know. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. <laughs> That wasn't subliminal. <laughs> um, listen, the gospel needs to be protected. In Acts twenty twenty eight, um, the elders are charged by Paul to, to watch over and to protect the flock. We recognize that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if necessary, it may result in exercising church discipline. And so the second mention of the word church in the New Testament is Matthew 18:17. And it's in that context where Jesus is speaking about church discipline. And it's interesting that in all the things that he could have said about church, one of the earliest things he makes mention of is the need for church discipline. Because surely Jesus knows that we're all sinners in need of his grace. And church discipline is a means of grace by which he aids us to stay focused. And so all this is done to the glory of God before the world. And so the purpose of the church is to know God and glorify him that others may see and be drawn to him. Some people put the primary purpose and goal of the church as being mission. And so then what can often happen in that situation is compromise can creep in because the goal is attracting. The goal is engaging. The goal is reaching. And if that's the primary goal, then let's do whatever we've got to do. I mean, let's just make it entertaining. Let's not even talk from the Bible. We can just tell stories about God. We can just tell stories, full stop. And so with mission being the priority, it can often lead to compromise because what it does is it puts people as a priority over God, meeting their needs. Actually, the primary purpose and goal of the church is to glorify God. And so with that being our priority, all that we do from that place will be governed by that. Does this glorify God? Is this in a way that is in accordance with God's revelation of himself? Is this going to misrepresent him? Is, and so it becomes a much more healthy outflow and outworking of God's will and purpose. Um, all this before the world in a reproductive manner. And so healthy sheep reproduce. And the mandate is to go into all the world and declare the good news. Go to all nations declaring the good news. Making disciples. And so fundamental, fundamentally and inherently there should be a, a, a healthy expectation to plant churches. Now That's just a a summary that could have had a lot more added to it. And the idea of a summary is really to try and keep it simple. And as you can see, that wasn't actually very simple, (laughs) but it was packed full of nutrients. But as we look at these things and throughout church history, these are characteristics that others have identified from Scripture and Amen, and testified to the fact that these are things that contribute to a church being genuine and healthy. But we can kind of look at this and feel like, okay, this is all very kind of organizational, structural, but what about from a personal level? On a personal level, what does that mean to me? On a personal level, how do I fit that picture? God, is so good. Hmm. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, we see this. Jesus is having a conversation with a woman from Samaria right by the well there. And she's saying, look, you know what? I'm a Samaritan, and we say that the Father is supposed to be worshipped on this mountain over here. And the Jews say, the Father is supposed to be worshipped in Jerusalem. What are you saying? And Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You want to understand what does it mean to you personally with regards to being a healthy church? Let me ask you, are you a true worshipper? Are you a true worshipper? Now, a lot of people hear that, and it's often used in the context of singing songs. This is not just about singing songs. This is about worship in its entirety, the word used, the original word used is proskuneo and it basically means to, to it's, it's got two senses of meaning on one hand there's a humble submission a humble submission to the one that is worshipped on the other hand that humble submission is motivated by love, by adoration um, in Robertson's word pictures, he gives this example, and he gives a word picture, as his book suggests, that says, it's like a, a, a dog, a fawning dog, licking his master's hand. Now, I know for many of you, immediately, you can't work with that, because it's nasty, the dog's licking your hand. But think past the fact that it's a dog licking a person's hand, and think about the, the, what that picture communicates in terms of the dog's humility and submission to its master. The posture of the worshipper in heart is one who is always laid out, spread out, face down before the master. In complete and utter, humble abandonment. And all of this motivated by a deep and adoring love. And so I ask the question again, are you a true worshipper? Are you a true worshipper? Is your heart completely and utterly, humbly abandoned before Jesus? Completely and utterly surrendered? Motivated by a rich and deep and overwhelmingly adoring love for him. Because if you want to kind of reconcile what does it mean to be a healthy Christian in a healthy church, the church is the people, and so the, the church is only going to be as healthy as the people, right? This is the picture of a healthy, a healthy believer, one who is a worshiper for whom singing songs is an expression of the adoration. And it's nothing, even if I look foolish, even if I'm croaking with the frogs, I'm making a joyful noise, it's all good. Because I love him. If I'm going to serve and lay out chairs, it's an expression of my worship, my humble adoration, because I love him. If I'm going to go and pass out tracts and have people scorn me and abuse me, it's nothing, because I love him. If I'm going to prepare children's church, I've had a long day and it's coming up to the weekend and I've got to... But you know what? We do it because we love him and we humbly submit ourselves to his pleasure. And we do so in spirit and truth and we do so from the heart, not just as a matter of ritual. We do so because we desire with all that's in us because we've had a revelation of who he is. And what he has done for us. And so we do it from our heart and we do it in truth. Not just general truth, relative truth, but God's truth. God's revelation of himself. We can only come to God on his terms. Thinking that, ah, oh, you know what, my sin doesn't matter. The way I treat my family doesn't matter. The way I treat my brothers and sisters doesn't matter. What I do with my money doesn't matter. Like all of that is not true worship. Because true worship is worship offered in spirit and truth. Truth. God's word, his revelation of himself. And know this the Father is looking for you if you're that person. He's seeking, seeking, looking for such people to worship him. Now, in Revelation, we get a sense that there are occasions when Jesus just chooses to step into time and walk among the churches. And we see the seven letters written to the, the churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation there. If Jesus was to walk amongst us here, unseen, invisibly, maybe even visibly as a visitor. <laughs> That makes you look at visitors differently, doesn't it? <laughs> he just takes on the form and just comes and sits down among us. What might he be looking for? Who might he be looking for? For worshippers. People whose hearts are humbly abandoned to him. Now, this has a practical way of outworking. And when speaking to the scribes, Jesus summarized it in this fashion. You shall love the Lord your God, verse 30 there, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Anything missing from that? Anything left out? With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so, what does it mean to us personally to be a healthy church? This is the aspiration for me as an individual, for you as an individual as we make up the body that is the local church here at Calvary Chapel, South London, that we would be worshippers of God who seek to love him with everything that we are and also love our neighbour as ourselves. And what enables us to do this, the fact that we've had a revelation of God's love for us. It's not rocket science. The most familiar verse of scripture, some would say. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And when we have personally had a revelation of God's love in that way, when we've understood our need for him to save us and we've submitted to his means of saving us, Love is something that we then find irresistible. Something that we can't hold back because we're secure in His love. And as we grow from day to day in an understanding of His love for us, that He demonstrated in doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, we are so secure that we're prepared to make ourselves vulnerable and love others, even in the potential face of rejection, even in the potential face of scorn, You know what, I'm going to love you anyway, because I'm loved, I'm cool. God's been so good to me. Even if you don't love me, even if the whole world is against me. If God be for me, who can be against me? So fundamentally, this is where the rubber hits the road. See, some people want a church vision that says, yeah, you know, we're going to go into every corner of the neighborhood and we're going to reach the homeless. And we're going to establish a, 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 a house for the homeless and we're going to bring them in and we're going to... And you know what? That's all great and wonderful. But fundamentally, where any and all of that type of thing must stem from, first and foremost is recognising that we are called to be true worshippers of God who love him with everything that is in us and love our neighbour as ourselves. And that's not, I'll love my neighbour as myself when they're nice to me. I'll love my neighbour as myself when they agree with me. Not at all. And my, 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 my consideration is this, that as we proceed and throughout the course of this year, God does his work amongst us, that we would see an, a, a real expression, a real outpouring of God's love through us one to another. Because Jesus said, <laughs> charity starts at home. You ever heard that phrase and think, where do people really get that from though? Is that even in the Bible? Well, Jesus said it in different words. He said, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Love starts right here. We can want to go out there and win, win the world and do all kinds of great things in the community, social action, yay. And we're scorning one another and treating each other like filth. It's not righteous. It's hypocrisy. We can't even say hello to one another at the end of a service because there's malice or there's beef or we just don't care. We just look past each other. This is the reality as the word translates into healthy works. Amen. I'm going to ask us to stand. I'm going to ask the, the band to come back. A healthy church to have right relationship with God and right relationship with one another, and that doesn't mean that on either side of that spectrum there won't be issues. Sometimes it, it will feel very hard to follow God. Sometimes we'll be in situations where we're like, "Lord, if this is how you treat your people, no wonder you've got so few," because it's hard. I know some of us are going through some real challenging times. Our faith being challenged, we're being stretched. That's fine, that's that's, that's par for the course. That's, that's, That's not strange. And God uses those experiences to strengthen us in relationship with him, to strengthen our faith because he's consistent. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changing. He's not going anywhere. And so even when there are issues, God is faithful, and we learn to grow in his faithfulness. And there may be some who, actually, you've not come into a place of right relationship with God. you may appreciate from what's been shared that actually you're not a true worshipper. I spoke to someone this week, and um, <laughs> it was a weird conversation. I went to the doctors for a blood test. I ended up there for about 45 minutes. Ended up speaking with this nurse, and she said this to me, and it was a weird statement, and it made sense afterwards. She said, you know what? Because I had on like a, a, one of my tops, um and it, I can't remember what it said on it. And she said, oh, you're a Christian? And I said, yeah. And she said, um, um, what church do you go to? And so the conversation started. And then there was a point where she said, you know what? I came to a revelation recently that you can be a Christian and not love God. And I, and I shuffled on my chair about to say, I, I don't know about that, you know. I don't know if that's really a Christian. But then she went on to clarify what she meant. She said, you know what? I was a Christian for many years. And as far as I was concerned, um, I was all right with God. I would hear people say, you know what? You know, we've all sinned and you know we, 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 we're, we're fallen and there's none good. And I'd think, but I am. Like, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm all right. And she said that, you know, she would go through her life as an individual really um, amazed at her friend who seemed to be so passionate about God. Even though morally she was on, on, uh, quite unstable in many ways, she said that she had a relationship with God. Her friend had a relationship with God that she knew that she didn't had, have and she was challenged by that. And that she would do things in order to be seen, she would do things in order to fulfill what was formerly required and routine. And she realized, actually, you know what, I don't love God. And, you know, I believe the Bible and I agree with it and I agree with Jesus, but I don't actually love God. And um, she said that the Lord just began to show her herself and her pride and her self-righteousness and just how much she needed him and how much he had done for her and she said her heart began to melt and um, so often um, in this country we're exposed to a Christian experience and can think that you know what we're alright with God I go to church and I, and I you know follow the rules and I'm an I'm a, I'm a upright citizen I'm a moral person but not really know the love of God. And, um, you know, we could debate, well, did she become a Christian at that point? Some of you are thinking in your mind, is that when she really, know, when she really got like, you know what, that's God's business. The important thing is that wherever we're at on our journey, we're drawing closer to the Lord, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following after him, appreciating his good work that he's done in saving us and so if you're in that place today where you recognize that's what you need then I encourage you to submit your heart to the Lord because he's ready to receive you let's pray Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that the church is yours. We thank you, Father, so much for the fact that through your Son, you have gathered a people to yourself. And um, even here in South London, Lord, you've gathered a people to yourself and made us your own. And we are humbled, Lord, desiring to be worshipers, true worshipers, who worship you with all of our hearts and according to your will. May we be a healthy church, Lord. May we be equipped to disciple. May we be effective in outreach. May we glorify you, Lord, to the community and the nations beyond. Have your way among us, Lord, and forgive us Forgive us where we have failed to love you with all of our hearts, where we fail to love our neighbours as ourselves. Forgive us, Lord. It's only by your grace. Have your way among us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name.